In the world of literature, there are authors whose words transcend the boundaries of time and culture, leaving an indelible mark on our hearts. I have the distinct honor of sharing with you a sneak peek into the upcoming book of a celebrated author whose previous novels, including The Joy Luck Club, The Bonesetter's Daughter, and The Kitchen God's Wife, have captivated readers around the globe with a unique gift for storytelling that blends the magic of the ordinary with the extraordinary. This author has brought us stories of resilience, identity, and the human spirit. It is with deep pleasure that I introduce to Anban Kuli's The Great Legend, a literary powerhouse whose work has touched our hearts and souls. Please welcome Amy Tan. Thank you. That's a great introduction. Thank you very much. Your upcoming book isn't your typical novel. The Backyard Bird Chronicles marks a significant departure from your previous books like The Joy Luck Club and The Kitchen God's Wife. What inspired you to explore the world of backyard birds and nature in this latest endeavor? Very sad reasons. In 2016, during the campaigns, there was a lot of rhetoric thrown around, but especially those related to race. And there was open racism, which made me, um, some of it directed at me, but Asian people in general. And I became aware that some of this racism had not been overt, but it had always been there. And it was very depressing to me. Um, so I decided, you know, racism is, is hatred and it's ugly, whereas nature is beautiful and it's about love. So I decided I needed an antidote and I went into nature. I decided to be in nature and also to learn how to draw, um, which is something I had wanted to do since childhood. In the Backyard Bird Chronicles, you describe overseeing various bird species and their behaviors with such vivid details and curiosity. Can you share an experience or encounter with a particular bird that had a profound impact on your perspective? There are so many birds that made me look at life differently. Let me just say in general that the world of birds is all about survival for them. All of their behavior is geared towards survival. And despite that, 75% of little songbirds or raptors, those owls and eagles and hawks that you see, about 75% of them never make it to adulthood. So those are astounding facts when you look at birds to see that they are actually living miracles, beside the fact that they can fly and they're beautiful and their plumage is just wonderful. But one of the first birds that made me very interested in birds was a, an Anna's hummingbird. And they're beautiful birds. When they turn their heads, they seem to flash a color at you. It just seems like it happens only when they're looking at you. That has to do with light reflection and refraction in the structure of their feathers. But this behavior for a tiny little bird was so aggressive. It come to me and then it spread its tail out and, and circled me and buzzed me. And, and it was very intimidating. But it also landed on my hand and fed from my hand. And so it made me very curious, what is it about the nature of a hummingbird and in birds in general that characterizes 
them because they're not just species, they're individuals. And so I wanted to understand all those differences, um, personalities and behaviors, instincts. Um, the other bird that made a, a profound difference um, in how I see nature was, um, it was a pine siskin. Now I'm talking about birds early on because these are the birds that made a big impact in changing how I, I what I was doing, um, why I started to draw. It was a pine siskin, it's a little finch, tiny little cute finch. And I saw one on my feeder one day, it was all puffed out and fluffy, and I thought, oh, it's a baby. And I was so excited. And then it flew to me, and it landed on me, and I thought, no, uh, uh, this is not normal for a bird that needs to survive. And it flew back to the perch, and I noticed its eyes were half closed. And then I realized it's December. This is not when we have baby birds. This was a sick bird, and this bird died. This bird had an illness because of an epidemic among birds. And it's a natural thing that occurs among finches. I had to take all my feeders down and thought I'd never put them back up again. But I realized uh, these issues of survival. And, and it sparked my interest in conservation. So that changed my life profoundly. I'm into conservation now of birds. And I had always been into conservation and wildlife, and we'd work with different organizations, but not specifically birds. And now I'm, I'm on the board of, a, of American Bird Conservancy. Many authors draw from personal experiences in their writing. How have your observation of birds and the natural world influenced your storytelling in the Backyard Bird Chronicles? In many ways, it's similar because I'm, you know, as a writer in general, I'm into observation. I've been, it's called curiosity and prolonged curiosity that becomes observation. In both fiction and in birds, um, pay attention. And I have to step back as an observer and be neutral to really uh, appreciate what this individual, this individual bird or this individual person or character, what they're about. If I come in with assumptions, then I will bias whatever I'm going to see. So I'm, I'm trying to be as neutral as possible in how I observe. Um, and, and then one of the key differences is for me is that when I write about birds, I'm just looking, it's like a vignette, a day in the life of this bird with me as an observer. It'll be simply a vignette that's like a very short story, but it's complete. There's usually some kind of thing going on, a behavior, a fight, a need for food, teaching a fledgling, versus a novel that spans years and years and years of observation that also came from childhood, that come from many sources of knowledge that I've read, and that has to be integrated into something that is um, these 300 pages or 500 pages need to hold together in a believable way, even though they're constructed as fiction. And I will say, some people say fiction is all a lie. To me, fiction is one of the best ways we can learn truth, because we are creating situations and characters, but they can be very much uh, like the 
the emotions, the conflicts, the crises that we face, and we need a way to express them. So we do that in fiction. Bird watching and journaling about nature are often seen as meditative activities. Has this shift in focus had an impact on your writing process? Yes, it has a profound uh, uh, impact by my not writing my novel <laughs> because I'm so busy looking at birds. This is part of me. I get to be very obsessive about different things throughout life. I was once really obsessed with dogs. I actually owned, co-owned a show dog that campaigned to be the number one Yorkshire Terrier in the country. <laughs> but that's a while ago. But birds, I don't think birds are going to be my passing fancy. Uh, for one thing, I don't have to go to dog shows. <laughs> it's not been good on my writing because of the time that it takes. But on the other hand, every single thing I do feeds into my writing, whatever the kind of writing is, whether it's nonfiction, essays, um, whether it's a, you know, an expansive novel. Um, I'm looking at issues, behavior, emotions, and so I get a lot of that through birds. Um, it, it has a lot to do with, again, this issue of, you, you talked about identity, which I'm really glad you said that. Most people say, she writes about mothers and daughters. I really think I'm writing about identity. And um, I happen to be a woman, so I'm not a son. <laughs> One of my identity things has to do with mothers. But it's the same thing with um, looking at anything in life. Your identity is determined by your interactions and your thoughts and your beliefs with many aspects of life. They all feed into that narrative of who you are. And so birds have caused me to think about a lot of things like emotions. As I said, we can't know what a bird actually believes about trust. But trust is something I think about a lot in my life, but also in characters. What does that mean? And what does betrayal mean? Do birds have betrayal? Do birds hate? Do birds love? Um, what are these emotions they might have? A lot of people think birds have no emotions. So when you see birds doing certain things, are you saying that's possibly love, a bird kind of love? Um, sharing or... Uh, what what we will do to defend ourselves. So many issues that I get to think about when I look about at birds from a different entity, from a different vantage, and I like the freshness of that. So it, it, it's definitely something that has helped me. And I think about the birds also in terms of racism. Birds are an example of, of course, one of the best examples of biodiversity. But it's also about when we look at ourselves as biodiversity of, you know, races being um, some aspect of that. I, I just feel like we, we appreciate it more in birds. And there are some people who don't appreciate it as much in humans. And so there's something to be learned about that, that we can appreciate every single species of birds, but every single individual of that species in the same way we can do that with humans. Um, that's what I love about birds and what I, one of the, and I don't write for messages that I want to give people, but if people are going to take something away from the book, 
it's really to love all the beauty and the variety that the diversity that we have in this world and just appreciate it. Amy, your observations of birds in your background reveal a deep connection with the natural world. As you watch these avian visitors, have any of their behaviors or interactions reminded you of themes and stories you've explored in successful novels such as The Doyla Club the, or The Kitchen God's Wife? If so, could you share how these bird encounters might have resonated with your literary work and your exploration of family identity and resilience? I am expecting one day somebody's going to say something about mother and daughter birds. I'm not looking at these birds in terms of, of, of certain themes. They come out to me in a way that I can later recognize. So I do look at parental care um, by these birds. Even though Joy Luck Club and all my other books are not really about parental care, I look at family units and how individuals in these units of birds, how they um, relate, whether or not they have large clans like crows and they're very defensive of one another, they even mourn a fallen you know, member of their clan. Um, or I'll look at birds that are very solitary, birds that come in together. And when I see these behaviors, I think about behaviors that we have that are tied in with emotions and how we have um, developed these things, either through our families or through our own um, choices. When you see for the first time the parent or the child, you have a friend and they're my age, and then you see their child, and you see, oh my God, look at those behaviors. The behaviors are like the way they swing their arms, or the way they talk, or the way they do this. They're the same as the parents, or the same as the children. And, and I'm fascinated with things having to do with the small details of, of people. But as you said, a lot of my books... Um, they have a lot to do with um, identity, but a very big thing. Identity also has to do with morals, and morality is what also defines it, our identity, and I want to know where that comes from. I want to know if it is, you know, inherent. Is there something epigenetically that predisposes us to um, our seeking uh, information in our lives that feeds into our identity. Um, I look at birds and I, and I say to myself, is there anything in these birds by their genetics that makes them behave this way? And what is it they learn uh, through experience, persistence, um, and, and exposure opportunities? So. Um, identity. We should not always be constrained by what people expect of our identity, that these things come out, especially in crises. Um, so I'm not sure whether I'm tying these things together. I often don't see a one-to-one -one in my writing about birds, in my writing about novels, except that I think more deeply that this is the key thing for me, is that I have to really remind myself that with everything I have to feel as deeply as I can. And often that means 
feeling what others are feeling, this, this kind of empathy that is related to imagination. You have to imagine yourself as this person. When writing a novel, you have to have the deepest form of empathy and get down to the things that people don't express. So it's the same thing with birds, um, you know, but I have to, you know, you, you ask yourself, do birds have morals? Um, what are morals? Um, is sharing part of morality? Is birds killed? Do they have a sense of morality when they're doing that? Um, so all of these questions I get to see afresh when looking at birds, and, and it reminds me of these um, I'll just say this one thing about intentions that I think is very important. In my book, it's a lot about intentions that consequences and our responsibilities. So for example, somebody comes to you for help and then you really don't want to help them, but you just throw something like, here's a dollar and they buy a lottery ticket and they become a billionaire. Do you take credit for that? You didn't really want to help them. You just gave them a dollar to go away. So do you take credit for that? I find it very interesting. It's a very interesting question. And now that I've said it to you, you will notice it in life. How many people take credit? How many people take blame? How many people take responsibility of the consequences? I think about that a lot as part of, you can look at a whole panoply of morality issues um, that define us. And intentions is a very interesting one. So at the same time, when I look at birds, I realize I can't know their intentions. They're a bird. And they express them in little micro uh, movements, uh, posture, you know, feathers, looks. They happen in a nanosecond. So I can't really know what they're thinking or doing. But I get to see some of it. What's the intention of this bird? And do I ever think that birds have some kind of morality or social order? Yes, it's all very interesting. Anything you can do to think more deeply is good. Your writing beautifully captures the connection between humans and nature. How do you think readers, especially those familiar with your previous works, will respond to this new facet of your storytelling in your upcoming book? I think that people will see that there's a similar um, a similar mindset and perspective that I'm really open to looking at a lot, and I want to express what is usually inexpressible. So in the Backyard Bird Chronicles, what you'll see is a lot of naive questions. And I don't let that hold me back that I can't. I, would say, well, I don't want to ask that question because it sounds stupid. But the journal was written for me. I was writing this stack of journals and drawings. But it, it was great. It was very freeing because no one else had to look at this or see this. I would post some of these on, on Facebook on a Nature Journal page. But there are now, it was my editor who said, we should publish this. Now it's out in the open and I think, do I want that question, the things that I thought about, do I want them out there? Because they're often very naive. But part of my fiction at the same time is just simply being open and expressing things. As I write, I have to move, remove the self-consciousness and just say, no, you, to be truthful in fiction, to capture what the 
human nature is, to capture um, what humanity is, um, and also just our drive, our desires. You know, I, I, I just have to um, be open to, to all of this. And so with, with birds, it's, it's almost like practice. When I was talking about, you have to practice drawing and you get better. You also see more, you see the details, you see how everything's connected. And that's what, in fiction readers, they end up seeing that when they read, they notice details, and sometimes they carry it into their lives as well. You've had the opportunity to collaborate with the experts and bird enthusiasts in your journey into the world of birds. How did these interactions shape your understanding and appreciation of avian life? I, I have been so lucky. The person who wrote the forward to the book is David Sibley, who's like the iconic ornithologist artist uh, in the bird world. Everybody has what they call a Sibley's. It's a bird guide. Um, it's about this thick. You can buy the West Coast version, the East Coast, or the, you know, the complete one. Um, really, really nice people in birding. That's, that's one thing I have to say is that every birder who shares information is kind, and not just to me. I know people are kind to me, just, you know, they, they want to be kind to me, and maybe they're not kind to other people. But birders, by and large, are kind people. They want people to love birds. Um, these people would take me out birding, as well as other people. We'd be there, and they'd say, oh, look, there's a yellow rump warbler, and I can't see it. And they, he'd say, do you see it? Do you see? And I'd say, no. And they said, here, let me help you. And they get a spotting scope and they put it on there. Sometimes I'd feel embarrassed and I'd say, I'd lie. I'd say, yeah, I see it. And I didn't really. But then I realized, no, they really, truly want me to see it. And they're very patient. So that's part of it, is being part of a birding community. You can just talk about birds and people don't think you're weird or boring. <laughs> it's a community of like people who like music or like fiction. Um, and one of the things that I think is different is, is the combination of, of, of observing birds and sketching birds um, out, in the, out in the open. Um, and I know a group of people I do that with. My mentor is in fact, when I first met her, she was 13. She just turned 13. And I thought she was an irritating child because all she did was ask questions. I saw her journal, it was like, you know, why is this and what's this? Oh, I see this, why for, why, you know, an irritating child, she's asking too many questions. But then I realized that the whole point of this was to ask questions, to be curious and that by asking the questions you notice. It's your guideline to seeing more. And so she became my mentor. And every time I saw, you know, we went out on outings, I would follow her and we'd talk. Um, and, and again, here's this thing about commonality. You know, normally, okay, 13-year-old child asking my questions. I have nothing in common. I like quiet, you know. But I did, in fact. And I continue to learn from her. Um, We'll be getting together in a couple of weeks. They, she and her mom stay with us. So I'm not, I, I went off tangent here, but it's, 
it's it's really this community of, of birds um, that is so inclusive. Um, one of the things, one of the great people who really taught me a lot about biology, in fact, uh, field research, was Bert Heinrich, who wrote um, The Mind of a Raven, as well as Birds in Winter, or um, One Bird at a Time, or The Homing Instinct, or The Nesting Season. He has written dozens of books. He's a field biologist. He will watch the same thing daily for years. And I went and stayed with him in the main woods, no running water, no electricity, nothing. And we observed during those four or five days together, larva. How many people would want to go spend their vacation looking at larva? But when you have somebody who's an expert on this, who is somebody who approaches something with intense curiosity and and a way to notice everything. Everything is fascinating. So he writes about birds, and I have learned a lot from him, and that is that you observe over time, not just once. As I was reading your book, I couldn't help but notice the beautiful illustrations. Did you discover a hidden talent for art during your journey with birds and nature? Um, when I was a kid, I loved to draw. And in, in fact, um, I found uh, a book that contained an interview with my parents when I was six. I was part of a study. Um, I didn't know it was a study. It was, I had, it was actually about reading kids who had learned to read early when you were not supposed to be taught to read until you were first grade. Um, and during the interview, the study was important enough, they published it. I found this study when I was in my 60s. My father said, um, even before the age of four, she liked to make up stories and draw pictures about them. And she has an amazing imagination. And I cried when I read that, because that's nothing my father and mother would have ever, ever praised about me. Imagination, drawing, making up stories. Um, but apparently it was there since I was a child. Uh, I was fascinated with the shapes of letters as well. So when I was growing, I remember at seven, I started drawing with pencil, started continuing to draw. When I was in high school, I had an art teacher who said, I started noticing, like a lot of kids do, oh, they draw better than I do. And then I became self-conscious. The teacher said, uh, she has skills but lacks imagination, necessary for a deeper level of creativity. So that's pretty bruising, you know, that you're, you kind of don't have any of the fundamental skills to be an artist, let alone a writer, <laughs> anything, um, music, whatever. I've written libretto, you know, I've done all these things that it's, it's actually a great incentive. People say, oh, she, she can't do that. She doesn't have that. It's like, who are you to tell me what I have inside of me that I want to do? So yeah, I, 
I took that as uh, encouragement later in life, but I stopped drawing. I, I stopped this notion I could ever be an artist. I didn't really take lessons. In, in my high school, art class consisted of, they give you the materials, you have an hour, students, you know, draw something. Um, so I didn't take drawing lessons until when I was, um, I'm, I'm 70, almost 72. I started drawing, taking lessons when I was 66. This is a good encouragement to anybody who is older saying, oh God, I made this choice in life, it's too late for me to do this. And it's not, unless you want to be an Olympic, you know, marathon runner. <laughs> that might be too late if you're 66. Um, but you can still try. It's not to say you have to go for the ultimate. You can still do it if you love it. So I started to draw, and this love of it, where I could devote hours and hours just being there, you know, passage of time. Same thing happens to me when I'm writing. I'm not aware of the passage of time. And I would draw, and I had the patience. I chose pencil and colored pencil because that required me to do every single little line in a very small movement. And I would meditate on this bird. I would meditate that I was this bird, what it was like, what it was feeling, breathing, what it was looking at. And that was all part of it. I, these were birds that had looked at me. And I wanted to capture something about them as an individual, not a species. I'm not doing a species illustration. It's in the moment, as if in the moment, just before the bird takes off, I got a moment with that bird. And that's what I'm trying to capture. And I think that's more important than simply looking at the 10,000 hours I devoted to practicing doing these drawings. It has to do with uh, your intentions as, as the person doing the drawing. Now, if the, your intention is to be better than somebody else or, or to make the greatest drawing in the world, could end up being disappointed and then giving up. But if you draw for your own internal reasons, um, then you have a better, uh, you have a, a better incentive to continue. Um, when you look at the drawings, don't think that just sprang out of me putting a pencil in my hand and my eye in my hand suddenly made that. That represents thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. I started in when I was 66, and now it's, it's been about six years. Um, and literally have done, you know, thousands of birds drawing them. I have books and books and books, these journals um, daily, and, and noticing things. Every time I look at a bird, this is really hard. When I look at an animal or a bird, I'm thinking, how would I draw that bird? Or what is that? What is it doing? How do I capture that part of it? You know, so it carries into everything that I do. And that is important in anything you do in the arts, whether it's books or music or drawing. It's not just about skill. It's about your perspective. And the perspective has so much to do with who you are and what you're looking for. With the Backyard Bird Chronicles releasing next year, 
What can readers expect in terms of the overarching themes and messages conveyed through your exploration of nature? Are there any aspects of this project that you are particularly excited for readers to discover? I started this as a journal of personal observations in my backyard, so there were no messages that I had for anybody else. Um, but now that it's going to be published, um, the one that I hope comes across is that anyone can do this, anyone can watch birds, anyone can draw. I know that sounds like, no, no, I can't draw, but no, if you practice something, if you learn, you can do that. The other is that what I would love, especially, is that if people read this and they started looking at birds around them, that they will fall in love with birds and they will want to save birds. They will become aware of the threats that are killing birds. They will try and fix their windows and put decals or something else if the birds are hitting their windows. They will be aware that cats are responsible for killing about two to three billion birds a year and that they would want that not to happen. So um, that's my big hope. People will become cur curious, their lives will be filled with joy and love and excitement and depth, and they will want to save these birds that make them feel that way. Amy Tan's Backyard Bird Chronicles offer a captivating glimpse into the world of avian creatures and the author's deep connection to the natural world. Her observations filled with curiosity and wonder remind us of the beauty that surrounds us and the importance of preserving it. We are grateful for her extraordinary contributions to literature, which not only includes her acclaimed novels, but also these heartfelt reflections on nature. Amy Tan's ability to find inspiration and meaning in the smallest details of the world around her serves as a reminder of the magic that can be found in everyday life. And we thank her for sharing this magic with us. Thank you so much. I love your questions.